Good morning. Today's reading is from Luke chapter 14, verse 1 through 35. You can follow along on page 873 in the Pew Bible. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Now he told a parable to those who were invited, when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, Give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, Friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He said also to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return, and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed, because they cannot repay you. And you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to the master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city, and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you have commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build the tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and is not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So, therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple." Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use, either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. This is the word of the Lord. Welcome, everybody, church family, and all the many visitors here with us this morning. 
Good to gather again. Um, if you are visiting with us this morning, a special welcome to you. Um, here at Windsor Community Church, we proclaim Christ and Him crucified. We love to see uh, sinners saved by repentance and faith in the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. And that is how we as pastors would hope that our church would grow. But we also believe in growing the church the old school way by parents being fruitful and multiplying. So um, parents, again, congratulations as one of the pastors. I'm keeping you in, in my prayers and your children. I love seeing all the children run around this church. It is a sign of a healthy church. Um, we're going to be in Luke, as you heard, just read chapter 14, verses 1 through 35. For those of you who visit here, we just preach through books of the Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, usually. And if I had a title for the sermon this morning, it would be The Great Invitation and the Great Cost. Uh, so let's pray and we'll dive in. Father, it's a joy to gather with your people again on another Sunday morning and sing your praises and fellowship and to see these precious kids you have given so many parents and dedicate them to you. We do declare that they belong to you, Father, way more than they belong to this church or the parents. And we trust your, your goodness and your plan for their lives. Chiefly, we pray that you would draw them to faith and repentance in the Lord Jesus Christ and that they would live lives for your glory. Pray now, Lord, as we continue our worship through the preaching and receiving of your word, that we would do that. We would worship. We would thank you for this invitation, and not just the invitation, but enabling us who are in Christ to accept the invitation, uh, even if the cost will be great as we, as we walk from here to the heavenly city. Um, Lord, because you, your spirit is in us, uh, enabling us, and you've given us your word and your people and so we praise you for all the means of grace you give us in our lives to, to accept and endure and embrace the cost of, of feasting someday in the house of Zion. We, we receive joy in the here and now because of that truth and because you're with us. And someday we know we will ex receive joy that we can't imagine. And we, we look forward to that day. We pray this in the name of King Jesus. Amen. I was reminded this week of one of my favorite stories ever. It's the book, The Giver. Has anyone ever read the book, The Giver? Yes. It was required reading for me in eighth grade. I, I, this book had such an impact on me because up to that point, maybe I had read one book that I liked, but up to that point, I was like, I don't like reading. I'm an athlete. I just want to do sports. And I read this book, The Giver, and I said, whoa, if reading is like this, I'm in. And so it has a special place in my heart because now I love reading and so I'm not going to ruin the story for you guys, but I just want to share a little bit. I was reminded this week because uh, I forgot that they had made a movie, and I watched a little bit of it this week. So it's, it's a fictional book. It's about the, these people who have created this utopian, what they think is a utopian society. Everything's in black and white. No one can see in color. They're cut off from the rest of the world. Nothing's unfair. Nothing's unequal. Everyone has the same clothes. They have the same houses, but they don't call them houses. They call them dwellings. Everyone gets a bike at a certain age, and it's the same bike. Uh, did I say that no one can see in color? Did I say that already? Everything's in black and white, and, and, and it's run by these elders, these wise elders, men and women. And, but there's one guy, we find out later in the story, his name is The Giver, and he has all these memories. No one else has memories of anything good or anything bad, but he has memories of great things, like uh, the first memory he's going to give the, the main character is, is a memory of sledding down a hill in the snow. They don't have snow in this utopian society because they control the climate so they can grow crops year-round. 
And so there's this old guy. He has all the memories. He holds all the memories of the town. He's one of the elders, and so he can give wise decisions when things come up in this utopian society. And the other main character is this young man named Jonas. And I don't know how old Jonas is. He seems like he's 16 or 17. After his education, he gets invited. For the sake of my sermon this morning, I'm going to say he gets invited, even though he gets told what he's going to do. And he gets selected to be the next receiver of memory. And everyone knows what an honor that is. He's going to get memories from the giver. So his job for the next many years is he's going to go to the giver's house, and they're going to do this weird, like, grab each other's wrists with their hands, and the, and the giver is going to transfer memories to Jonas. And at first, they're good. At first, he, like I said, he shows him a memory of sledding down a hill in the snow, but then later he starts giving him memories of war and, and of these poachers killing these elephants, and, and it's a heavy weight. I would argue the weight is equal in the horrible memories of poaching and wars and the great memories of sledding down a hill in the snow because they can't do that in their utopian society. The point is that for Jonas, the invitation to be the next receiver of memory was an honor, but it would cost him a lot. And he didn't realize how much it would cost him. Nobody else in the whole community knew what it meant to get these memories, to hold these memories. It was going to cost Jonas a lot. The greatest invitations come with the greatest costs. Just an hour ago, I decided to say, you know what another illustration is? Marriage, is it not? Ladies, you gave us signs that you were willing to accept the invitation, so we got on one knee, and we invited you to be our wives. We said, please, give me your life. Spend the rest of your life with me. It was a great honor, but it's been a great cost, hasn't it? You've (laughs) suffered a lot. (laughs) Yep, and it's only one way. Just It's only the ladies that, that suffer that cost. <laughs> the invitation to the wedding supper of the Lamb, the great banquet, the feast in the house of Zion, synonyms, all, all, all words for the same thing, has been offered and accepted by every person who has placed their faith in Jesus Christ. And it costs Jesus Christ everything to be able to offer us the invitation and to enable us to accept the invitation. And it will cost much to us as we travel to the heavenly city. It's not going to be easy. You know we preach no prosperity gospel here. It's going to be hard. Life is hard. Paul says in Acts 14.22, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Some of you need reminded this morning that the cost will be great. You did sign up for it, and and God's going to enable you to endure the cost. But it's infinitely worth it, isn't it, Christians? Isn't it worth it? Some of you in here, I will encourage you to count the cost before accepting the invitation into the kingdom of God. It is worth it, but it is going to cost you something. We are in the middle of a, of a section of what uh, scholars call the Jerusalem journey. One commentator called uh, chapter 951, which we're past, all the way up to chapter 19, verse 44, um, Jewish rejection and the new way. And that came to me this week as I was studying this passage because I'm really going to highlight that this morning. In, in all 35 verses this morning, we're going to see clearly Each paragraph is either about the Jewish rejection of Jesus, chiefly I mean the leadership, and and their old way, or it's about the new way Jesus is instituting as he ushers in the upside-down kingdom. 
And that's my argument this morning is those who accept the invitation into the kingdom of God must embrace, must count and embrace the cost of that acceptance. That's what you guys are reading, okay. I tried to be more memorable in the structure. I wanted to be sticky and memorable, 35 verses. This was hard. This was cre- as creative as I could be. It's wordy. But first, we're going to see Jew- Jewish rejection in the old way, verses 1 through 6. Then we'll see the cost of the new way, humility and love, 7 through 14. Third point, Jewish rejection in the new way. The invitation is going to be broadened, 15 through 24, and then the cost of the new way, total renouncement. If you're a poet like me, you see A, B, A, B. See it? Okay, maybe that's a little helpful for you to remember. So first, let's look at Jewish rejection and the old way. In this first scene, Jesus is dining at a house of the ruler of the Pharisees, and it's, that's really important to note because that sets the scene for the next three paragraphs. They're at this dinner party. This ruler of the Pharisees is the host. It's another Sabbath day in which much controversy has already happened between Jesus and the religious leaders, and it's a familiar scene, isn't it? Jesus has healed a few other times on the Sabbath, and most recently, we just saw this two weeks ago in chapter 13, verses 10 through 17, when he healed the bent-over woman. And verse 1 says that they were watching him carefully, the original wording denoting that they are trying to catch Jesus in a serious mistake. They want to trap him. They've, they've set their hearts to trap Jesus. And so they intentionally, I think, set this dinner up as a trap. I think they even intentionally invited this man with dropsy to see what Jesus would would do. Dropsy is what we call edema. It's when your limbs or your torso is swollen uh, from excess body fluids. And so verse 3 says that Jesus responded. But in the scene, they hadn't said anything yet. But as we know, King Jesus, he is God. He, he had read the scene and he had read their hearts. He knew what they were trying to do, so he responds to them. He knows that they're going to get mad at him and call him out for healing, working on the Sabbath. So he takes the initiative and he asks them, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Now, Jesus was intentionally trapping them. Would they hold to their extra-biblical standard and deny this man healing? Or would they break their own rules to agree with the healing of this man? And they were stuck in their hypocritical mud, so they're just silent. They don't answer at all. And Jesus heals him and sends him away. And then in the second half of verse 5, he says, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pulling?" Pull him out, implying, of course, they're going to pull their kids and their animals out of wells, even if it was the Sabbath. They, they couldn't reply. They were stuck. And they are, yet again, evidence of much of Israel's rejection of her Messiah, especially the leadership. It seems like most of them rejected Jesus. And after this scene of dining with the Pharisees, either Jesus actually never has another dinner party with Pharisees, or Luke thinks his readers don't need any more case studies of the Jewish leadership rejecting Jesus at dinner parties because this is the last time Jesus and the the religious leadership have a dinner party. They would not repent, as we saw two weeks ago. They would continue to be the barren fig tree. They would continue in their old ways. They didn't want anything to do with the Messiah and the new upside-down way that he was bringing. 
They wouldn't accept Christ as God's Messiah. As we saw a couple weeks ago, the kingdom of God is a kingdom of relationship through repentance and not religion. But the Jewish leadership was blind to their need to repent and to acknowledge Christ as Lord. Their commitments to their old ways wouldn't allow them to be objective in their judgments. I wonder if that applies to any of you in here who don't follow Jesus Christ. Is there a pre-commitment to unbelief? Or because of some of the ways that Christians, sadly, have treated you, or Christians that you've seen on TV, you refuse to see Jesus for who he really is? Are you willing to see him as scripture presents him and not as his imperfect people present him? And therefore, what he says of himself? If that's you this morning, I pray and hope that you would. Christians, I just remind you uh, from this paragraph, Christ is Lord. I know you know that, but Christ is Lord. He dictates the kingdom ethic. He dictates that this is a kingdom of relationship through repentance. Praise God, it's not a kingdom of religion that we just have to earn our way and do enough works to get there. He's Lord. And so anything he says in this book, we must obey as Lord. He inspired it by his Holy Spirit. So let's look at the next couple scenes. If the first scene was Jewish rejection in the old way, verses 7 through 14, compare the old way with the new way, specifically the ideas of humility versus self-exaltation and love versus a quid pro quo, like giving in order to receive ethic. So let's look at the cost of the new way, humility and love in verses 7 through 14. So in this scene, Jesus, the great sociologist, notices how people are choosing their seats. His words here are for the other guests at this Pharisee's dinner party. In their culture, there were seats of honor. Maybe sometimes in our culture we have it that way. At my house, we don't have assigned seats. There's not a seat of honor. You just kind of sit wherever you want. But I, I bet in our culture there are ways that we see that. But it was really the case in this culture. And apparently, based on this scene, the, the seating might happen before the host has a chance to tell you which your assigned seat is. One scholar says this, in an honor-shame culture, the places of honor at a banquet reveal one's social status and influence. Dinners were regarded as barometers of one's prestige in the gathering and the community. The dinner becomes a place for social jockeying and self-advancement. So Jesus is seeing the guests take the seats of honor for themselves. They're exalting themselves. And so he tells a short parable. In summary, he says, if you're invited to a wedding feast, don't pick the honored seats. Pick the lowest seats. Because if someone more distinguished than you comes, you may be asked to stand up in front of everyone and move to a lower seat. Hundreds of years before Jesus taught this, his spirit-inspired Proverbs 25, 6, and 7. Listen to this. Do not put yourself forward in the king's presence or stand in the place of the great, for it is better to be told, come up here, than to be put lower in the presence of a noble. Jesus is teaching what God's word has always been teaching. Humility. Don't, don't self-exalt yourself. If you, if you get moved lower, a.k.a. humbled, that will be awkward and embarrassing. I get to share a story, no kidding, that I've been dreaming of sharing on a Sunday morning for years. And, it, and I finally get to. I've been saving it. I can't wait. 
Audrey, this is my wife right here, if you're visiting, Audrey has, listen to this, 26 first cousins. I have three. Big family. That means Grandma Carver has 27 grandkids. And one time, I think I can say her, she's not going to listen to the sermon, her cousin Janelle calls Grandma Carver and says, hey, Grandma. And Grandma Carver's like, well, you know, thinking in her head, well, hey, but I have 27 of you. So, so who is this? And Janelle says, Grandma, it's your favorite granddaughter. And no kidding, Grandma Carver says, oh, hi, Audrey. <laughs> I mean, talk about just self-exaltation straight into a huge slice of humble pie. And it was awkward because Grandma Carver was serious. Ouch. Janelle, I hope Janelle, Janelle, we love you. If you listen to the sermon, I don't think she's going to, but. The point is to choose the lowest seat, to not think more highly of yourself than you ought. And if, if the host tells you to move, to move to a more honored seat, you're going to be honored in front of everyone. And then we see this, this principle in the upside-down kingdom, this, this ethic of the new way, verse 11, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. This principle may not always play out here on earth. But it will on Judgment Day. We could say it's an earthly principle and a heavenly reality. The followers of Jesus should live out this humility, even if in this life it doesn't turn to honor. And that's actually the point, in my opinion. Jesus isn't giving us an equation to get the honor we want every time we want it. It's not do this and you're guaranteed to get honor. I know you're seeking honor. You should keep seeking it. Here's how to get it. That's not... The point, the call is for true humility, which means it's not a means to an end. Don't be humble and do humble things as if it's an, a ladder to get the honor that you really want. You've probably heard the famous C.S. Lewis quote, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. You don't have to call yourself names or wish the worst for yourself. Just try to think about yourself a whole lot less. And friends, even Christian friends, this is really hard, isn't it? Like I, I just challenge you maybe this week or maybe pick a day this week and say, I'm not gonna try not to think about myself one time this day. It will be very hard. But by God's grace, we will grow in humility. And maybe some of you have that really humble friend. I was struck as I prepared this week. I have a friend, probably a few of you, but one really came to mind uh, of this guy who he never talks about himself. I'm blown away. Every time we get together, which isn't that often, if I ask him about him, he'll be quick about himself, and he'll give God glory, and he turns it right back on, how's Chad? How's your heart? How's your walk? How's your marriage? How's your kids? And he strikes me as a very humble man. He rarely likes speaking about himself. May God cause all of us to be that kind of friend to someone. But the ultimate exaltation of the humble one comes at the true wedding feast on the great day of judgment when the sheep and the goats are separated and the sheep sit down to feast in the house of Zion. That's when this principle finds its truest fulfillment. And until then, yes, Christians, we will battle with pride. What are, what are some of the ways that we choose, choose the best seats? or ways that we might not choose those seats outwardly, but inwardly we choose them. 
in our hearts, and then we resent when we don't get given that seat. A few thoughts I had for you this morning is maybe your boss is always sending you on the coffee run, and you really resent it. You don't think you deserve that seat. Maybe you're getting the worst shifts at work, and you don't think you deserve that seat. Maybe your ideas are always being looked over. Maybe in your marriage, your seat exempts you from something. There are certain tasks around the house or with the kids that are below you. I'm not going to sit in that seat. Brothers and sisters, look to Christ, his glory, his righteousness, and the way he humbled himself, and you will remember there is no seat too low for you, that you are thankful even just to have a seat. One poet says this, Humble we must be if to heaven we go. High is the roof there, but the gate is low. And the ultimate humility is to acknowledge our sin and what we deserve because of it and our helplessness and turn to Christ as Savior. That's how we go through the low gate into heaven. Next, Jesus has words for the host of the party and another teaching about his new way. His teaching here has to do with selfless hospitality, a love that the Bible calls agape love. So let's look at verses 12 through 14. Jesus now tells the host that he shouldn't invite people to his banquets that can return the invite, but those who can't. This was common ancient custom. If you were invited to a banquet, you were expected to return the favor at some point in the near future. But Jesus' way is to invite those who, who could never pay you back, to be open to invite those who could never pay you back. That kind of selfless hospitality with no regard to reciprocation is called agape love. Agape is a Greek word. It just means it's, that this is a love that is not based on feelings. It's not based on warm fuzzies. It's a selfless action that seeks the well-being of others without expecting anything in return. This is really played out in how well we treat the people we don't like. The Pharisees probably didn't like the poor that much, the crippled, the lame, the blind, because they thought their sins has caused their suffering. In Jesus' words to this host and to anyone who would host is to show this kind of loving hospitality. We could overinterpret this parable to mean that we should never invite our friends and family to dinners or feel condemnation for never having invited the, the lowest and the least and the left out kinds of people to our houses for dinner. I don't think that's the point. The point is motivation. Why do we love by showing hospitality? Is it to get something out of it? A return invite? A reciprocation? Or even if that something is just to be seen as a great and loving and capable host? We're the Pharisees. Are we willing to love those who can offer nothing in return? And it's not just hospitality. Any apparent act of love and service can be done with selfish motives. One says reciprocation as a primary goal is the product of an immense self-focus. So, brothers and sisters, as we love, as we show this agape love, we are really living out our Christian life. We are really showing fellow Christians and unbelievers the selfless love of God as we do this. 
But I ask you guys to consider this. Husbands and wives, think about the last four or five times you've served your spouse. What were your motives? Were they because you were hoping for some form of reciprocation? I think I do that. But here's the deal, brothers and sisters. You will be repaid. And the passage almost sets up this dichotomy. You can be repaid by those on earth with an earthly portion, or you can be repaid by God with a heavenly portion. Look at the second half of verse 14. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Right before that, he said, you'll be blessed. Humility and agape love are hard work. They cost the disciple. It's hard to stay humble, to love selflessly, but we've been freed by Christ to do so. So that's the cost, two of the costs of the new way. Let's look at this third point, Jewish rejection in the new way. The invitation is broadened, verses 15 through 24. The speaking of another parable starts with someone's comment in verse 15. Look at it with me. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. We actually had a lively discussion about this on Friday afternoon. Some of you have heard we have this Friday afternoon meeting where the preacher kind of preaches a sermon, and we, we do more Bible study, we, we give feedback, and, and we actually talked a lot about who, who said, verse 15, who said, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. I think, and a few of the other commentators think, that it, it was probably a Pharisee. It was probably one of the leaders. He's tired of Jesus getting on his soapbox and telling everyone about this new way, be humble, show agape love, and the Pharisee's like, Okay, Jesus, like, yep, blessed is everyone who's going to be, eat bread in the kingdom of God, amen, pass the ketchup. Like, let's stop the, the lectures. Or, though, and maybe it wasn't a Pharisee. Maybe, maybe it was just the guy with dropsy or someone else. And it's genuinely like, yes, blessed is everyone who's going to be there. Either way, what we're going to see in, in this parable is it serves as a warning for the Jewish leadership who think they're going to be at the heavenly feast. But it also could be an encouragement for those who will actually be there. So in summary, uh, this parable is about the kingdom of God because of the comment he says in verse 15, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. And the man who gives the great banquet is God. In ancient times, there would be two invitations, and actually that's kind of how we do it now, isn't it? You, there's a wedding coming up six months before, save the date. Except in these ancient times, the save the date also had an RSVP, like RSVP right when you get to save the date, and then there would be another invitation later when the servants would go out and say, hey, it's ready, you can come over now. And all who were invited to this guy's great banquet and apparently said yes to that first invitation start making excuses when the second invitation comes. The first one went out, saved the date, they're like, yeah, sure, we'll be there. Servant comes, it's ready, nah, here's, here's some excuses. One bought a field. He said he needed to go look at it. Please have me excused. One bought five yoke of oxen. Needed to go examine them. Please have me excused. Who buys a field and five yoke of oxen, significant purchases in this day, without having inspected them before purchasing? Or 
dude, if you've already purchased them, like, you can go check them out tomorrow. It's Friday night. Like, go to the party. Check it out on a Saturday. But at least they say, please have me excused, right? They're, they're kind of being gracious. The final guy says, I married a wife. I can't come. <laughs> In essence, those making excuses cared more about their possessions and their affections. I didn't come up with that. One of the commentators did. Those making excuses represent the leadership of Israel. They had accepted the first invitation to the great banquet. They were like, yes, God, we we believe in you. We follow you. We're going to teach others to do it. But when Christ came, they rejected him, and therefore the kingdom of God, and therefore their invitation to this great banquet. So when the host hears of all the lame excuses of the first invitees, he tells his servant in the second half of verse 21, go out quickly. Well, first it says he became angry, and he tells his servant, go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. These, in my opinion, represent the the lowest and the least and the left out of Israel. The, 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 The Israelite prostitutes and the bent over women who are children of Abraham. So the servant does that. He invites them, and then there's still more room at the banquet. And so the master says in verse 23, Go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. I think those represent the Gentiles' inclusion in the kingdom. Go far and wide. This invitation to the kingdom of God is not just for the religious leaders, Just for for Israel, lowest, least, and left out, but even for the Gentiles. Anyone who wants to accept an invitation can, can. I want my house to be filled. The kingdom of God was offered and overall rejected by the Jewish leadership. But many of the lowest and the least and the left out of Israel accepted Jesus. And eventually many Gentiles would as well. And so Jesus ends that section with a prophetic warning in verse 24, for I tell you, none of those men who are invited shall taste my banquet. If the religious leaders would stay in their unrepentance, if they would cling to their old ways, they would not be at the heavenly feast. And it seems like that was the case. Many of them will not taste the heavenly banquet. If you're with us this morning and you're not a Christian, you're invited to the feast of the kingdom of God. You accept that invitation through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. He lived a perfect life. He died on a cross in your place, bearing the wrath of God. He rose again three days later. He ascended. He's alive right now. He sent the Holy Spirit into the world. And I pray that the Holy Spirit even now is giving you eyes to see. God is great and glorious and yourself as sinful and Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. And that you would accept the invitation and join us as we walk to Zion. I would also remind you that, in my humble opinion, no excuses are good enough to not accept this invitation, not possessions, not affections. And come talk to me after, because I tried everything. I'm one of those people, I didn't get saved till I was 26. I had all the affections and possessions of the world, and it didn't fill the hole in my heart but only through a relationship with the triune God through Jesus Christ have I experienced joy that I can, I can barely comprehend. And I know that's the story of many Christians in here. But if you want to talk about that after service, please come talk to me about that. 
Believers, brothers and sisters, rejoice. You're going to feast in the house of Zion. We are going to sing that song with all of our hearts in a few minutes. And fight any affection that would rise above your affection for Christ. But don't forget, there's a cost. There's a cost to this earthly sojourn. Let's look at that final paragraph. The cost of the new way, which means total renouncement. Verses 25 through 35. The scene has changed now. The dinner party is over and Jesus is back on the path to Jerusalem and great crowds have accompanied him. So he teaches them the cost of discipleship. He says in verse 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now I know and we Christians know that many people have grabbed onto that to prove what a horrible guy Jesus was. Can you believe he teaches this? And he would have been if he wasn't God. But friends, he's, he's God. He's making a powerful point. He's not contradicting himself either. In other places, he says we must love our neighbors and love our enemies. So obviously, we must love our families as well. He's using a rhetorical device called hyperbole. Ask my wife. I'm very familiar with this rhetorical device. Hyperbole, it's an overstatement or a magnification to make a point. That's what Jesus is doing. The point is our love for him must be first and most. But remember, this is about discipleship, not salvation. One who is saved, who follows Jesus, must seek to keep love for God above everything and anyone else. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, we will. And we'll repent when we don't do that. Of course, we love our families and our lives, but it should pale in comparison to our love for King Jesus and our willingness to sacrifice anything and everything for him. But this discipleship is costly. It's hard living a life of taking up your cross, being rejected by many, fighting your sin, dying to self to serve. And Jesus encourages these would-be disciples to count the cost, and then he offers these two illustrations in verses 28 through 32. He says, if, if you're building a tower, wouldn't you sit down and count the cost to see if you have enough to complete it? Otherwise, if you lay a foundation and you're not able to finish, everyone's going to see and begin to mock you. And they'll say, this man wasn't able to finish. Or, or what about a king who's going out to a war against another king? Is he going to sit down and deliberate? whether or not he's able with 10,000 to meet him with 20,000. And if not, while, while the, the other king is a great way off, he sends a delegation to ask for terms of peace. If we're diligent to count the cost in construction and in war, how much more should we be in spiritual things? If we do everything we can to avoid earthly embarrassment and destruction, how much more should we want to avoid heavenly embarrassment and destruction? The cost to follow Jesus is everything or nothing. He gets it all or he gets nothing. He doesn't just want a little piece. It's all his. It all belongs to him. There can be no half-hearted disciples. He says in verse 33, So therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. We must renounce everything. It doesn't mean we, 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 we have to give away everything. We have to sell everything. We have to say, I hate you, wife. I hate you, mom and dad. But we have to say, everything I am and everything I have belongs to you, King Jesus. 
If you ask me to go to the ends of the earth to bring the gospel and my family says, no, you can't do it, I'm choosing Jesus. I'm choosing obedience to Jesus. If someone in my community group or or in this church comes to me and says, "I, I have this struggle, I need help financially, can you help? Every penny in my bank account does not belong to me. And we pray together to King Jesus and say, would you have us help this person? It all is his. And, and I think that's the point of the last two verses. It seems like an abrupt, abrupt left turn, but it's not. Salt is good if it's salty. But if salt loses its saltiness, it can't be restored. It has no purpose, and therefore it's thrown away. The purpose of a disciple, among many things, is to live a life of joyful worship for the glory of God, acknowledging that everything we have and everything we are belongs to him. That's a salty disciple. That's the only kind of disciple. Any other kind gets thrown out. (sighs) That's the first breath I've taken. (laughs) I know that was a lot of scripture, and I kind of sprinted through it. I guess we figured that uh, a text that's primarily about an invitation to a great feast should literally be a great feast on the word of God. There's lots of meat on the bones still. Maybe this week you're going to go back and read chapter 14 and and see what else the Lord has for you. Saints, we have received and accepted the invitation to feast in the house of Zion. It's a joyful honor, but there's going to be a cost on the road to get there. It'll be hard. But all the way uh, from here to there, we get God. We get the triune God. We get Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We get his word. We get his people. He will continue to give us humble pie. He will continue to help us learn how to show agape love to others. He will give us joy amidst the cost now and joy amidst the joy later when we're feasting in his kingdom. Don't be overwhelmed and discouraged at the cost because it's so worth it. And as we read God's word in context, we don't just look at what came before, but we look at what's coming next. Next week, we're going to hear the the parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, the prodigal son, some of the most famous and most beloved verses in Scripture, that God rejoices over lost sheep found. He sent his son to draw his lost sheep to himself. He rejoices over the lost coin. The father runs out to us, as the father does in in the story of the prodigal son, embracing sinful people and saying, let's make a feast. Doesn't he do that in the prodigal son? Kill the fattened calf. We are going to party because I love you and you're home. I finish with one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. It's a one-verse parable. You should memorize this, saints. Listen. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and then covered up. And then in his joy, he goes and sells everything he has so he can have the field. The cost didn't matter to him. He said, it's all, I'll sell it all so I can have the treasure. Praise God for doing that in us too. That we would say, Lord, it's all yours as long as I can have you. Let's pray. We praise you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We praise you for giving us this invitation, enabling us to accept it through through Christ and enabling us to embrace the cost. We know it's going to be hard, and, and we actually, I pray, Lord, that you would, you would help each of us embrace, I mean, really embrace the cost, and, and know that uh, even in the hard things, 
in this life that you, you use those to, to grow us a deeper faith and to cause us to be more like Christ, to be humble, to show agape love. And so help us joyfully embrace the cost, Lord. We, we don't want to live for our own comfort, but we want to live for you. And we long for the day that we will feast with you in Zion. So we pray, Lord, and continue your work through us, the proclamation of the gospel for your glory, and come and take us home, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen.